Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Luke chapter 19. Let me go back uh, very briefly and just reference Luke chapter 9. Uh, verse 51, Jesus uh, is setting out resolutely, uh, heading for Jerusalem. Since the middle of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem. As he heads to Jerusalem, he's doing two things. Primarily, he's focusing on his ministry for his disciples. We may be, by the, by the middle of chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke, we may actually be within the last nine months of Jesus' ministry. He's heading for Jerusalem. We know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We know he's going to die. The disciples don't understand that. But Jesus is preparing the disciples for the fact that he's about to die and for their ministry that they're going to have after after he dies. But Jesus is also now having this confrontation with the religious leaders. For three years, Jesus has been preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, but it hasn't met their standards. It hasn't been what they wanted. And so now Jesus is proclaiming, ultimately, judgment for those who are opposing his message. They failed to recognize, as we're going to see in chapter 19, the time of God's coming, and they failed to recognize the things that make for peace. So Luke chapter 19, verse 28, says this. Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what will bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 and 29 begins this passage. As Jesus was going on to the Mount of, to to Jerusalem, he came to Bethany, or Bethpage in Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Here's a map that shows you a little bit of an idea where these cities are. Uh, uh, This is the east over here, Bethany to the east. This is the Mount of Olives, right right here. And Bethany and Bethpage are these, are two cities here that lead down to the Mount of, and then you go down the Mount of Olives into, the, into a deep, deep valley, and then you come back up into the temple. All right? Jesus is entering from, from the east, of course. It's significant that he's coming from the east. This is a picture, a modern-day picture I took from the Mount of... Uh, I'm actually standing on the Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem, looking back over 
to the east now. This is the Mount of Olives. This is the very southern side of the Mount of Olives, and you'll notice all the stone. These are all tombs. Jews, uh, uh, modern-day uh, Jews of, in history, all believed that when God entered uh, to Jerusalem, when God came back, He was going to come from the east. And they thought the best place to be buried then would be to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. The book of Ezekiel says in 43 verse 2, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. So Jews bury themselves and, and one another in the east on the Mount of Olives. But guess what happened? They missed the time of his coming. Jesus' coming from the east was very significant and very important. In the year 2003, my first time I had ever traveled to the Holy Land, I, I knew uh, uh, the story that Jesus apparently lived his last week of his life in the city of Bethany. This is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that Jesus a journey maybe around here to the south and went to Jerusalem every single day, or perhaps through Bethpage and, and then down the Kidron Valley and, and then to Jerusalem. Well, if you go to the Holy Land today, one of the things that happens is, is it's not the same city. I mean, the Jerusalem of Jesus' day was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And it sits about 70 feet below the modern-day city. So when you walk the streets of Jerusalem, those are not the streets Jesus walked on. They're 70 feet below. And so, you know, it's hard to find places when you're there where Jesus actually walked. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I could go to Bethany. And at least if I go to Bethany, I could travel around the Mount of Olives and kind of take that journey that Jesus took, knowing that he took that journey every day for the last week of his life. And I could kind of relive that experience. So I went off uh, one day. We had a, a break. and I, I was taking a course, uh, uh, doing some studies there. And uh, on, on a Sunday morning, we had a break uh, from the course. We went to church in the morning, and then we went uh, uh, to go find Bethany. Well... We had trouble finding it. I had a young man that was with me, and the professor in the class had told me, Rob, you're going to really like going to Bethany. That's where Lazarus' tomb is there, and they have, they have some neat sites there, and we're not going to spend any time in Bethany, so you should go. So I took this young man who was with me, who was taking the course as an undergrad student uh, with me, and we began journeying, but we couldn't find how to get there. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it doesn't look like that. There's streets, there's cities, there's roads, and we're kind of venturing our way, trying to get our way around. Um, and the professor had told us, they said, the professor had said, bring your passports. This is 2003. I'm thinking, I have no idea why I need to bring my passport, but okay, I'll bring my passport. Right, the young man who was with me uh, uh, said to me as we were walking along, we couldn't find our way to go, he says, he says by the way, I, I, I got $20, a, a $20 bill. I'm like, well, that's great. I said, I don't have anything. I said, I, I have my passport. So we began walking around. All of a sudden, an Israeli military jeep comes driving up. And I'm like, uh-oh, are we in trouble? Right? You know, you know, it's military. You, you, military, you, you don't know. Uh, am I okay? Am I okay? And, and, and can I help you fellows? Uh, yeah, we're trying to find Bethany. Oh, no problem. You go up to the top of the hill about three blocks, and you're going to see a, a, an enclosure right there. The street's barricaded off, but you'll be able to go around the barriers, and, and uh, there'll be cabs on both sides. Easy to place to cross. So we assume it must be okay. I mean, if an Israeli soldier tells us how to get there and tells us what to do, all right. we get up three blocks, and sure enough, it was right there. And they were in the middle of the street. There were those, uh, you know, the, the highway uh, dividers that, that divide the highways, right? Imagine those highway dividers being eight feet tall that blocked off the entire road. So there's all these cabs on this side because they couldn't drive down the street. But um, uh, the, the, the blockade's in the middle of the road, and then there was a, a fence here for a property fence. And there was an Israeli soldier with an Uzi sitting on some rubble between that barrier and this fence, and he's helping people across, back and forth. 
All right, and I see this really older lady, not as old as, uh, no, much older than you guys. You guys are all so young. Don't worry about it. But the, the, and, and she's climbing across, and I'm thinking, well, if it's okay, I, I can do it. So we get across the other side, and now I'm thinking, I don't really know where I'm at. I didn't know the geography. I didn't know what the West Bank meant. I didn't know any of that stuff back in the day. And I'm thinking, well, what, you know, and the, the young man who's with me, is, I could tell he's really nervous. I'm thinking, I know I'm safe on that side. I don't know if I'm safe on this side. You know what I mean? And so we began walking. Now, no one told us where Lazarus' tomb was. So, okay, so we walk up to the top of the hill, maybe a block, and we're thinking, where should we go? And I look over, and I'm like, there's a church right in front of us. I'm like, let's go there. So we do. We go into the church, and there's a dozen people or so, and I, they were speaking Arabic, most likely. I had no idea what language it was at the time. But, uh, and, and so we, we went in there, and we, left, we walked out. And we go down the street a little bit, and we walk around the corner, and all of a sudden... We really don't, we're nervous, we're, we're, we're scared, we're not sure what's going on. All of a sudden we see a sign above a door, and it says, Lazarus' tomb. I'm like, we did. And there's two men sitting across the street. Now, remember, these are old Palestinian streets and Israeli streets. The, the street's, you know, maybe 15 feet wide. And these two men are sitting there, and there's a door there, and it's locked. And the, and the man goes, do you want in? And I'm like, sure. And okay, no problem, I let you in. And he goes inside and he gets a key. And he comes back out right away, and he, gets, and he unlocks the door. And I'm thinking, I don't know this is going to go over too well, you know. We go inside there, he shuts the door, you get two Americans in there never to be found again. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was scared. So I tell the young man, I said, you go first. <laughs> I am not stupid. That's right. So he goes down, and I wait outside. Right? All right. He goes down, and he's spending like five minutes. I'm like, dude, it's a cave. It's, last, it's, it's just a cave. There's no need to like tour it or whatever. You know? So he goes down. He finally comes back up. So I go down. I look inside the cave. That's good enough. And I come back up. Uh, I, come out, I come back up, and the, young man, and, and the man across the street goes, hey, did, did you enjoy it? I said, yeah. He said, okay, that's $2 each, four shekels each. And I'm like, I ain't got any money. Right? And the young man goes, all I have is a $20 bill. And I'm thinking, oh, man, how stupid are you? You just lost 20 bucks. And the man turns around and he goes, no problem, no problem, I make change. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, we're scared. We don't know where we are. We're in a foreign, you know, in, 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 in a land that I'm, I don't know. He goes inside the house. Right? And he's looking, and there's another guy outside, and he's, he's got a slingshot. Let me show you the slingshot, just like David. And he's, and he's using a slingshot, and he's showing it, and he's shooting it. It's incredible. Having a great conversation with this man. And all of a sudden, maybe five minutes at least goes by, the man comes out. He says, all right, all right, I got $10 in shekels, and I got $8 in American dollars. And I'm just thinking, you could have lied. You could have went in your house for five minutes and said, sorry, guys, I couldn't find change. Here's, here's $3, and he keeps 17 He went inside his house, looked around, spent five minutes or more, and he made change for us. We walk down the street very briefly here, and we see another sign, and it says, oldest house in all is Palestine. And as I looked through the archway to enter into the home, I saw a, a, a sign in the back that says, donations welcome. I thought, well, the kids got change. We're good. And we go, and come on in, come on in, I show you all this house in Palestine. This is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus would have slept and the animals would have been down. And he's just showing us this house and he's having the most incredible time because there weren't any tourists in that part of the world at that, right? In those days. And he's showing us all these things. And we walked away going, whoa, what's going on? My world uh, uh, of all that I was taught 
was kind of beginning to rock a little bit. Luke 19, 29, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as, they, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Near the Mount of Olives. What's interesting is, is Jesus doesn't tell us which village, or Luke doesn't tell us which village Jesus sent the two men to. Was it Bethany or was it Bethpage? Just go to the village ahead of you. Which one? We don't get to know that. He also sends two of his disciples. We, don't, we are not told which two disciples it is. Now, when you read the Gospel of Luke, that should strike you, because Luke has lots of details. Luke is by far and away the most diligent person to give us detail after detail after detail after detail. But Luke doesn't bother to tell us which village it was. Nor does he bother to tell us which of the two disciples it was. Or which two of the disciples that, that it was. Now it also seems that there's some secrecy going on. When you go there, you're going to untie a donkey. That's, that's called stealing. And someone's going to say, well, why are you doing this? The Lord needs it. The code word is, the, or the code phrase is, the Lord needs it. The disciples say, the Lord needs it. And the man who Luke tells us is the owner of the colt. Tells the, tells the two disciples to take the colt. Why the secrecy? I believe the secrecy is because those who were involved, both the villager who owned, uh, the, the man who owned the donkey, and even the, the, the disciples, they were still alive at the time of the writing of the Gospel of Luke. And if Jewish authorities in Jerusalem are still around in Jerusalem, if this is before 70 AD, before Jerusalem's been destroyed, the authorities in Jerusalem who had had Jesus crucified don't like whoever gave him the colt. They don't like whoever's, right? If, if their identity is still in danger, then Luke is sheltering their identity to protect it. That's the, that's the secrecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, we think of a donkey as a beast of burden, as something low, and, 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 and it's not a horse and all but you have to understand that in the Old Testament world, kings rode donkeys. When Solomon was going into Jerusalem to be crowned the king, he rode on a donkey. And it's not just a donkey, it's the colt, the foal of a, of a donkey. And we're told, in, and I, think, I believe it's Matthew's gospel, that no one has ever ridden this donkey before. And the reason why is because no one can ride a king's horse. No one can ride a king's donkey. This must be the very first person to ever ride it or it can't be fit for the king. When Jesus rides a colt, a donkey into Jerusalem, he's proclaiming himself to be the king. Everything that we're going to see in the next several chapters is about Jesus being crowned the king. And it begins with a proclamation entering into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Verse 37 it says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. For all the miracles they had seen, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in its highest. 
Here's the picture of the Mount of Olives. Uh, the picture I showed you earlier will be uh, uh, to the south of this. So that all the tombs, you can barely see them on the, the right-hand side of the picture here. So this is looking a little bit farther to the north. This is the Mount of Olives here today. And right there is a church. If you go, if you go to Jerusalem today, uh, there, it's a church that's shaped in the, top, in the form of a teardrop. Because that's believed to be the spot, we have no idea, of course, really, where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. But what you can see is, of course, the great descent. This goes all the way down into the Kidron Valley, which will be right below my feet where I'm taking the picture. So as he goes to Jerusalem, as he goes down the Mount of Olives, and then he comes up to Jerusalem itself. Note the language of the temple as well. Verse Psalm 118 that we did earlier. It says, open for me the gates of of the righteous. This is temple language. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I'll give you thanks. For you answered me, you have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is a reference to the cornerstone of the temple. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Let me explain. Piecing together Ezekiel, the Lord's going to come back to Jerusalem from the east. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem from the east. And as he's coming, they're shouting and singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But guess where the Lord's going? He's going to his temple. It's a picture, it's a story of God returning to his temple. Returning to his people. The Pharisees, however, verse 39... Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I can't. Sorry, I I, I can't. This reminds us in Luke chapter 3 when John the Baptist was baptizing people and he cries out to the crowds. Uh, John the Baptist says in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, He said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The the Pharisees, who claim themselves to be the descendants of Abraham, are missing the coming of the Lord and the returning of the Lord into his temple. The rejection of Jesus is going to result in the destruction of Jerusalem. The rejection of Jesus is going to result in the destruction of Jerusalem, verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Two charges Jesus makes. They did not recognize the things that make for peace. Shalom. And they did not recognize the time of God's coming. If you were with us last week, we skipped ahead last week and we read the next passage where Jesus goes into the temple and overthrows them and he changes tables and wreaks havoc. And he says, my house was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. You were supposed to be the peacemakers to the nations. You were supposed to make me the God of peace known to the nations and you haven't done it. You've made it a den of robbers. You missed 
the things that make for peace in the time of God's coming. Look at verses 43 through 44 again. In the Greek, there's four times that the phrase is going to end with the word you. Four, five, I'm sorry, five times. Five references to judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. They're going to build an embankment against you. They're going to encircle you. They're going to hem you in on every side. They're going to dash you to the ground. You and your children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can actually, this is actually a, a, a legit real photo. Uh, this is the, the main street that would have been the, what's called the Cardo. If you go to an ancient city, they have a, a Cardo. This is where the shops are. This is, this is the shops. And this wall right here is uh, a little bit north of this wall is what's called the Wailing Wall today. This wall is a retaining wall. Uh, if you go up to the top of that wall, that would be the temple platform. If you're not aware, King Herod the Great had enlarged the temple complex and had made it a massive, beautiful temple up on the top. So this, this is simply a retaining wall. Uh, these rocks right here are stones that fell from way up there in A.D. 70, and you can see how it dashed the street below. They're going to build an embankment around you. They're going to encircle you and hem you in from every side, and they're going to dash you to the ground. And not one stone will be left upon another. How do we apply this to our lives today? Let me give you a couple thoughts. Number one, to follow Jesus is to pursue peace. To follow Jesus is to pursue peace. Verses 42, 41 and 42 of chapter 19 again. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. We're supposed to be peacemakers. Now, we can apply this understanding individually, which is what we typically do, right? We take these passages and we apply it to ourselves, but we also need to apply it corporately. As individuals, it's our role, it's our task to make Christ known to the nations. And we do so by being the peacemakers, advocating for peace and justice in our lives, reconciliation. Now, there's always that, that caveat, right? That's not always possible. Romans chapter 12 Verses 17 through 20 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. We're to be the pursuers of peace, but it's not always possible. But as far as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. It doesn't mean I have to actually be at peace with all men, because they might not actually want peace. The early church dealt with this often. The Romans didn't want peace. Well, they want a peace only if you proclaim Caesar as Lord. I'm not proclaiming Caesar as Lord. So here I am. And they, they die a martyr's death. But as much as it is possible in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our associations, we are to be the bestowers of peace. Isaiah 9, 6, the verse we often throw out at Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If we are to be imitators of Jesus, and he's the Prince of Peace, then we must be the agents of peace ourselves. Remember, Jesus condemns Jerusalem because they didn't know what brought peace.
peace. Now, a couple thoughts about pursuing peace. Number one, pursuing peace means getting our hands dirty. It's easy to, to kind of stay where we are and listen to what we want to listen to and, and, and be comfortable. But to pursue peace and reconciliation is difficult. It's hard. It means getting ourselves in the middle of the muck and the mire of the world. In 2008, I returned back to the city of Jerusalem. And I was there with a, I brought a group of students this time. I had already finished all my studies. And I brought a group of students and said, hey, this is a great way to see the city and, and see the sites and the Holy Land. And, and I brought a group over there. And uh, in 2008, we're driving from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's four and a half miles from Jerusalem. It's just south, uh, southwest. Uh, and I had been there five years earlier on my trip that I mentioned to you a little bit about earlier. Uh, and all of a sudden, I realized as we're sitting on the bus, my son was sitting next to me, and we're talking and talking and talking. I realized, we've been on the bus for a while, and Bethlehem's only five miles away. What's going on? And I looked out the window uh, to my left, which would be to the east, and there was Bethlehem. And we were going around Bethlehem. And, and I'm like, why are we going around Bethlehem? And the person that was sitting, with, sitting next to my son, I really, to this day, have no idea who it was. It wasn't part of my group. It was another group that we had combined with. I really have no... And the person began to explain to me some of the things that were going on. And began to say, well, we're traveling on a bypass highway. I said, what's a bypass highway? They said, well, a bypass highway is built to connect the settlements. I said, what's settlements? If you're not aware, settlements are, 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 foreign, are Israeli citizens who live in Palestinian lands. Okay? They're illegal against international law. All right? You have a foreign nation who, who, who just builds a city in, in, in someone else's land, and that's where the violence happens. When the settlers, the, the Israelis who live there, try to travel from a settlement to Jerusalem, they go through Bethlehem and there's violence. So they built these highways to kind of help the Israelis kind of get from the settlements to Jerusalem without having all the violence and clashes. But I also looked and I began to see up against Bethlehem was a wall. And, and that wall, is, it, it, it depends on who, you, who you're, it, it's a separation barrier. Uh, and that wall is to keep Palestinians from entering into, into Israel and, and, and blowing people up. And, if, and the reality is, by the way, there's two sides here, and they both have problems. There are Palestinians that are terrorists, and there's Israelis who are, uh, who are oppressing the Palestinians, and the, and the Israelis who want to live in peace and, and, and not have to worry about terrorist bombings, and there's Palestinians who, live in, who want to live in peace and not have to worry about being oppressed. And, and I began seeing all these things. And they took us to um, uh, this, a refugee camp in the middle of Bethlehem. This is where uh, uh, thousands and thousands of people who were evacuated from their homes in 1948 live in one of the most densely populated areas in the world. This is uh, 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 the Ida refugee camp in Bethlehem. Now, uh, look at this picture here. The next photo, I'm just going to simply turn around. So I'm looking to the south in this picture. And the next photo now, I'm I took looking to the north. And what I want you to notice is see this wall, the separation barrier, built right up against the city of Bethlehem. And notice, it, it, it's not... It goes right up again, and on the other side of that wall are orchards and, and olive groves and trees. The people in Bethlehem cannot farm their own, their own farms because they can't get to them because they're, they're literally, in, in, in some ways, imprisoned in their own city. And what I want you to notice now, the next picture here is this, the, the last one I showed you. I was looking right over here a little bit to the east, and this one here, I'm simply looking straight to the north. There's a settlement. That's an Israeli settlement, an Israeli city built in the middle of Palestinian lands, and note that this wall does not keep Palestinians from going into Israel. This wall keeps Palestinians going from, from Palestine into Palestine. 
This wall is built not on the line that divides Israel and Palestine. This wall is built on the line that divides Palestinian land from Palestinian land. The people of Bethlehem cannot go from their own villages. And, the, and so there's problems here, and there's violence, and there's, and there's clout, and I'm learning all this. This is a picture of a settlement built wholly, 100% on Palestinian land. The entire city built on the top of a hill. This overtakes all this Palestinian land. And I'm realizing what's going on. Over the course of time, 2011, I took another trip. 2010, I went back again, saw more things. 2011, I went back myself. I lived for a week in the city of Bethlehem. And I just began talking with Christian leaders around Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem and, and, and elsewhere. Tell me what's going on. In 2012, I met these two individuals, uh, Robbie Damel and, and, uh, and Hassan. Robbie is, a, is an Israeli who lost her son as an Israeli soldier to a Palestinian sniper. Hassan is a Palestinian who lost his nine-year-old daughter to an Israeli soldier's uh, 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 bullets. They formed an organization called the Parent Circle that initially had over 20 parents, Palestinians and Israelis, who go together and say, we need to stop this because it's senseless that our sons and our daughters are dying. An Israeli and a Palestinian whom people thought they can never live together, they can never be in peace, form an organization together. And if you're an Israeli and you lose a son or a daughter, or you're a Palestinian and you lose a son or a daughter, you come into this organization and they don't care whether you're Israeli or whether you're Palestinian any longer. They just know that you lost a son and I lost a daughter. And they advocate to end this crisis. I came to meet this man whom I describe uh, this man is a, name, a man named Daoud Nassar. When I tell people about Daoud, here's what I tell people. In the, gospel, in the book of Acts, in chapter 6 and 7, there's a story about a man named Stephen. And Stephen gets into a debate with some of the Jewish leaders, which I believe included a man named Paul, at the time known as Saul. And they couldn't refute Stephen's words. Jesus was the man whom the scriptures told us about, he, he was crucified, risen, and buried again, but God raised him from the dead, and he is the temple of God. And they couldn't refute his words. And so they stoned Stephen. And Luke records that when they began to throw stones, his face looked like that of an angel. Which I believe, by the way, is actually Paul in his eyewitness testimony. When Paul tells Luke about the stoning of Stephen, he says, you know, i got to admit, when they started stoning him, his face looked like that of an angel. I think of Daud Nassar's face. This is the most incredible man I've ever met in my life. I've been privileged to have him over my home. We've, we, 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 we've got an incredible friendship. Daoud has a farm. And this picture is taken from his farm. But as you see in the background there, there's a settlement. He's got a farm just south of Bethlehem. And on every hillside around his farm, there's another picture from the same farm, there are Israeli settlements all around. He's got five Israeli settlements that surround his farm. And as you realize, then what happens is they want his land. Because his land, Palestinian land, that his great-grandfather, his grandfather bought in 1916 from the Ottoman Empire. They actually have the paperwork from 1916. They also have paperwork from 1948 when Israel became a nation. They have paperwork from 1967 in the, in the country of Jordan when it was under Jordanian control. They have all the papers saying, we own this land. And yet what happens is they continue to, to try to destroy his land. He has a boulder in the front of entrance to his land, and it says in three languages, which you can't probably read here on the screen here, but in Arabic, in German, and in English, we refuse to be enemies. 
They have come to his land, settlers and the Israeli government, and have bulldozed thousands of his orchards, of his, grow, of his fig trees and olive trees at a time. They bulldoze them. They're trying to drive him off the land because if he, doesn't, if he leaves the land and it remains unoccupied for two years, it becomes state land. Once it becomes state land, it can go to the Israeli government and they can build another, and they can connect all the settlements together. But Dao won't give up his land. He continues to remain on it. They bulldoze his property over and over again. They come with demolition orders over and over again. And he's gone to the courts over and over again. And his answer is, we refuse to be enemies. One really quick story. He was telling a story one time where uh, about 10 o'clock at night, his, him and his family with his couple of kids were in, the, were in his van. And they had gotten some groceries. They were coming back home. And, they were, and the kids had fallen asleep. And as they got out of the van, Israeli soldiers walked up to him with guns. And he said, and, and the Israeli soldier said, look, we want you to get out of the car. He says, okay, look, he says, I got two kids in the car and they're sleeping. If they see you, they're going to be scared. So just let me wake them up carefully, please. He said, okay. So Daoud in English, his kids know Arabic and English, of course. In English, because the soldiers know English as well. So in English, he says, listen, we're home, and I just want you to let you know there's some guys outside, and they're, and they're good people, and they're, and, and they're not going to hurt us at all. They just want to talk to us. And in saying these nice gentle, loving, compassionate things about the Israeli soldiers, he disarmed them. He didn't portray them as the bullies. He didn't portray them as the enemies with guns who want to destroy us. He didn't portray them as those are the people that have been destroying our lands. There are some nice young men outside and they just want to talk to us. So I don't want you to be scared when you wake up. And the soldiers were disarmed. To be peacemakers means we have to get in the midst of something that's difficult and messy. You see, it's easy for us in the West to go, oh, there's no way you can ever bring peace to the Middle East because they've never lived in peace. To, uh, it goes back to the time of Isaac and uh, 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 Jacob and Esau, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. It goes way back. You know, they've been fighting ever since. And the answer is that's not true. Israelis and Palestinians, Muslims, Christians, and Jews lived together in that land for hundreds of years peacefully. I've had Israelis in my home. I've had Palestinians in my home. I've, I've been in their homes, Israeli homes. I've been in an Israeli home of a woman named Robbie who lives one mile from the Gaza border. Bombs from Gaza land in her front yard. The tunnels that they discovered come up in her front yard. And, and Robbie's an Israeli activist who says, look, what do you expect if you keep them in a, in, in a prison like you have them in Gaza? What do you expect them to do? And she advocates for peace and for justice. But it's messy, and it's difficult. Pursuing peace means we have to acknowledge conflict and our responsibility to advocate. It's just easy to dismiss the need to pursue peace. It's their problem. Let them work it out. They're never going to get along. I have enough things to worry about. Jesus said that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed because they failed to recognize the things that make for peace. If we come today on World Communion Sunday and recognize that we are one member, that we are members of one body, and if we take 1 Corinthians 12, that we all have many gifts, and that we're to use all those gifts for the benefit of that one body, and not look at that as just, just, just our local body, but as the global body of international believers in Christ Jesus, and then we begin to say, well, what is our role? What is our task as Western Christians? 
What is our task as Northminster Presbyterian English, Northminster Presbyterian Spanish, the Grove community? What's our responsibility? We begin to go, you know what? We have a lot of power behind us. We happen to live in the most powerful nation in the world. We have a lot of wealth behind us. We have a lot of learning. and tr- We have things, resources the church around the world needs. When I sat in 2011 with a group of Palestinian and, and uh, Christian pastors and leaders and Israeli pastors and leaders, and I interviewed them. I was doing a conference in, t- in the fall of 2011 uh, on Christianity in the Middle East. And I said, look, I'm going to go home and I'm going to advocate for you. But I want to know, what do you want me to tell them? If, if I'm going to be an advocate to you, and I go back to my Western church, what do you want me to tell them? And pastor and leader after leader after leader said, just tell them that we exist. Tell them we're here. Number three, pursuing peace means we have to lay aside our comforts. Pursuing peace means sometimes we have to lay aside our comforts. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. We're going to read that passage in fuller and more detail in just a moment. In the first century world of Jesus' day, it was actually illegal to visit someone in a Roman prison. If you visited somebody in a Roman prison, you were considered an accomplice to the crime, liable to be held for the same charges as the person who's being accused. The problem is that Roman prisons, they weren't places for you to stay for 50 years. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. Roman prisons were places that you stayed maybe awaiting trial or or for whatever it might be, or most likely a place that you stayed until you bribed somebody to get out. And you're just going to stay here until you come up with some money. But the problem is that Romans didn't provide you anything. They just provided you a place to stay. They didn't provide you with clothes. Roman prisons didn't provide you with water. Roman prisons didn't provide you with food. So when Christians are imprisoned, they need Christians to visit them. I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you looked after me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. Our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ in this day of world communion is to recognize that we are larger, we are members of a larger body. And that we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to be agents of peace. I'm not presenting to you any, by any way, stretch your imagination, by the way, this morning, a solution for peace in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm simply telling you that there's people on both sides. I know them. I've been in their homes, and they've been in my homes, and their moms and their dads, and they just simply want their kids to live in peace. They don't want to have to worry about school buses getting blown up or going to the mall and getting blown up. And they don't want to have to strap bombs around themselves and blow people up. They just want to live in peace. And they can live in peace. And we need to advocate for them by advocating for all sides and the human dignity of everyone involved. So here's my assignment to you, and that is this. Find somebody who maybe you don't agree with. Maybe you don't, you don't know how to get along with them. Maybe you don't know how to be a peacemaker with them because you, don't, you simply don't. And go sit in their home and get to know them. And go talk to them. And don't have an agenda of converting them to your belief. Just listen to them. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you do what you do? Why do you wear what you wear? Why do you eat what you eat? And get to know them. Because if we don't get to know them, we can't really be able to find peace and reconciliation between them. And that means getting out of our comfort zones. 
Because the easiest thing to do is to stay home. But Jesus doesn't afford us that opportunity. If only you knew the things that made for peace. And if you recognize the time of my coming. Father, we come to you this morning. And we recognize, Lord Jesus, that we live in a world that's really radically messed up. There's war and violence and bloodshed all over the place. There are Israelis who legitimately live in fear for their own lives. Their grandparents were killed in the Holocaust. They know what it's like for the world around them to oppose them. And they're afraid of all those around them today. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring peace to Israel. And there are Palestinians who feel the weight of occupation and the weight of the oppression and the heavy hand that's upon them. And we pray, Father, for the Palestinians. And, Lord, there are Christians on both sides. And we pray that you'll help them in the church to rise up and to be a voice of light and of truth and of justice. But, Lord, there's war and bloodshed everywhere. There's violence going on all around the world, and we pray for peace there as well, and that you'll bless the brothers and sisters in Christ in those countries also. The people in Nigeria who have suffered under the fate of Boko Haram, and the families that have lost their hundreds of young girls that have still not been brought home, help them to pursue peace, Lord. I've been in their villages, and I know that they want vengeance. But vengeance is yours, says the Lord. And I can't comprehend what it means to have my daughter stolen I can't be in their shoes. I don't know. I don't understand. I, it's hard to sympathize with them and where they're at. But Lord, help them to see that you are the God of peace and promote justice and to be a light and a witness. And we pray for the repentance of Boko Haram and those people that have captured those girls. And we pray, Father, for those people that have uh, suffered under ISIS. The woman that just went back to her village and two days ago and just all the memories of everything that happened to her under ISIS control for two years just flooded back into her heart Lord how she'll never going to get them out of her mind oh Lord may you be the God of peace in her life and Lord help us here in the west with our affluence with our wealth with our powerful with the power of our nation to go to the polls in a month and a half and vote and to cast our vote for justice and for peace and that you'll help our leaders and the leaders of this country and the leaders of our state to be advocates for peace and for justice and for truth and not for political agendas. But we can divide, our, that, we, that we can separate ourselves and, and come together amidst these divides. At least in the church, then we can be advocates for justice and for peace. Because you, O oh Lord, are the Prince of Peace. And Lord, we don't know what that means. But we know, Lord, that we've got to get our hands dirty. We pray that you would help us, that you'd be honored and pleased in all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.